It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done him better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust, sweat, and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, who actually strives to do the deeds who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, and who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place will never be with those cold and timid souls that know neither victory or defeat. It's by Theodore Roosevelt. He wrote that in about 1910. And this book here is a collection of stories about people in that arena. Because the main story is that story about the rescue of mankind through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we said, we've been reading through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a book about Christ's followers at the very infancy of the young church. And they're carrying out a commission that Jesus gave them to spread the church, witness Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and through Judea and Samaria, essentially to witness throughout the ends of the earth. Now, we read earlier in the book of Acts that the Christian disciples were first warned, and then they were threatened, and then they were beaten, but yet nothing stops these early Christ followers from spreading their faith. However, at this point, the church seems to be in lockstep. They haven't spread beyond Jerusalem. They haven't moved the needle, so to speak. But now they've reached a tipping point. If we read Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 13, we read that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogues of the freemen, as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave them as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testify this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. Now let's take a little journey through history and and kind of go through this. Now, when they talk about the synagogues, and I got this from John MacArthur, now he said that there were at least three, if not five, different synagogues that that were referenced here. Now imagine that somebody was speaking words so incendiary that the elders of five Independent churches took it upon themselves to shut this guy down. He must have been hitting something close to the mark. And they were meeting to argue with Stephen. Now, 
let's talk a little bit more about who these synagogues were made up by, because I think that we can actually pull something out of here. Now, the Syrians and the Alexandrians, they were both from Africa. Now, Alexandria, as you might remember back from middle school history, was uh, named for Alexander the Great, and it was the capital of Egypt. Now, there's a great community of intellectuals there. The Alexandrian Library was the repository of all known wisdom of mankind up until that point. So the Jews that lived there were scholars. They were smart guys. Not only were they scripturally smart on the Jewish law, but they were also philosophically read Plato, Socrates, and all the different types of philosophy because it was a gathering spot for intellectuals. So they weren't lightweights. Now, the Libertines, they weren't all that important, but they were Jews that were known as freemen. And essentially, Pompey, who was uh, killed by Caesar, remember? Anyway, he came down, conquered Jerusalem, and then he decided uh, to take some of these Jews as slaves, took them up uh, to Rome because he needed additional housekeeping, and after Caesar gave them the axe, about a decade or so later, uh, they were set free and they became their own community. So they were kind of these Romanized Jews. Now, the Sicilians and the Asians were both from Asia. Asia Minor, actually. And when we talk about Asia Minor, what we're talking about, essentially, is the area above Israel, right about where Syria is today, and parts of Turkey. Now, why I'm telling you all this is because the principal city of Sicilia was Tarshish. Now, who was from Tarshish that we know of? Saul. Right? And it turns out later on we read a whole bunch more about this particular guy, Saul, from Tarshish. So anyway, back to the story. So they get a few more people to lie about Stephen, you know, make up some things about what he's truly doing, and they cook up some charges against him, which was blasphemy against Moses. Now, coincidentally, if we go back towards the, towards the Gospels and we read about the life of Christ... That was the same charges that they brought up against Christ. So they rigged this kangaroo court, and they bring him in front of the Sanhedrin, which was the equivalent of the Hebrew Supreme Court. And they say, what do you have to say for yourself, young man? Boy, they... And what Stephen does is he launches into a sermon. And basically, he says this. The Jews at that time were basically a bunch of smug, self-righteous types that Israel had always shown themselves to rebel against Moses in the first place and rebel against the law that Moses brought as well. And because the Jews had the temple and the law of Moses, they felt that they were entitled to act any way they chose. But then afterwards, they could cozy up to God and God would overlook their sins because they had a special relationship. Basically, he called them out and called them a whole bunch of hypocrites. Now, he gives them, oh no, and he just doesn't say that as kind of an empty statement. He decides that he's going to drag out the entire Old Testament and show them point for point where they had strayed away from God. He pretty much tells them that they reject Moses, they fought him at every point, they killed the prophets that God sent them. 
And if they truly understood their scriptures as they said they did, they would clearly see for themselves that everything that the prophets had written all pointed to Jesus as being the Messiah. It was irrefutable. He had them. In verse 54, they said they were, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. So they did what every other rational group of people would do looking to stay in power. They killed them. And then the Jewish authorities put the church to flight. Now, if you're going to look at this face value, you would say that once again, the bad guys won. Because here's this champion of the Christian church. He's filled full of spirit. He's doing all of these wonders and signs, and people are getting excited about Christ. And then what happens? He's dead. And on top of that, now he's really got people stirred up, and people are having to leave their homes. They're having to leave their businesses. I mean, they are getting out of dodge. I mean, how could this be? We'll come back to this in a minute. Well, actually, in about 25 minutes, but we'll come back to it nonetheless. But pound for pound, minute for minute, Stephen had the maximum bang for the buck. You know, scholars point out, and they argue about this, but no other mortal man since Moses had such an influence over the church than Stephen. Stephen had a rendezvous with destiny. And what? 60-some-odd verses in the Bible, and that's it? Page and a half. Now, I wonder, are those days past us? I mean, as believers sitting here now, when we look at the exploits of the early church and the people that God chose as his followers, I mean, is that beyond us? Are we to be content sitting in our pews, comfortable with the way things are, knowing that back a long time ago, God used to do miraculous things through us, now things are different? Are we happy letting others pull the oar? Or are we the men and women in the arena? And if we aren't, where do we start? Well, first off, I'd say that you'd have to be willing. You know, I ask myself, self, do I really want to do something grand? Do I want to do something big for the Lord? I know we're in church right now, and the right thing to say is yes. But in theory... By and large, for me, it's nothing more than a daydream. Because my focus is not where it should be. See, I don't like the inconvenience. I don't want to give control up of my life, my resources, my time, my ambition. I don't. I don't want to. Because what happens is, if I choose to step out and do something big for God, it involves taking a risk. I might have to do something that I want, don't want to do. It might inconvenience me. I might end up being a missionary and going to China. Lord forbid, I might actually have to listen to people when I'm busy, might have to care about someone other than myself, 
might have to spend my resources on something that, frankly, I don't think is all that important. There. I said it. That's how I feel. So why am I even up here? You see, there's a reason for the way that I feel. And maybe you feel that way too. See, my nature, my base personality, my worldview is strictly entrenched with what Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, but we'll get to that later, wrote about called the flesh. It's our base personality. It's not in your notes, but if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 5.19. Paul says that the acts of the flesh are obvious. There's sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. For the flesh desires, he writes this earlier, but the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And frankly, whenever I interject what I want, what my priorities are, what I think is important, it's not coming from God. It's not inspired by the Spirit, but it's coming from the flesh. There are no noble purposes that, that live within our heart unless those noble purposes have been put there through the Spirit. And when I come from my base personality, when I come from what I want, what I focus on, well, that I is another way of saying it's the flesh. So if I'm to be willing, frankly, I have to avail myself to the master's work. I have to die to that self. I have to focus on Christ. If we put that into a modern parlance, dying for oneself, I'd say, it's not about you. And that's where our focus has to be. Unfortunately, in the times that we live in, and I would even submit to you that since, since the pear under the fruit tree It's always been that way. It's always been a conscious choice on where we're going to put our focus. You want to make a difference? Put Christ first. You know, often that we think in order to do something for God, we have to have the financial resources or a better education or better people skills or networking skills. But the point is, when we are in Christ, we succeed despite that. As a matter of fact, God uses the most unlikely people to do his work. You don't believe me? Let's go through the Bible real quick. Abraham was a coward. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was a braggart. Moses was a murderer. Gideon was a coward. Elijah ran from trouble when it mattered the most. David, man after God's own heart, slept with a friend's wife and then had his friend killed to cover it up. Solomon was too rich and too smart and turned away from God. Matthew was corrupt, Peter denied Christ, and Paul was a murderer. It's all right there. You can read it for yourself. So if you think that you're not qualified to serve God, congratulations. You're in good company. Neither was any of those other people. The only difference was is they were willing to put God's wants in front of their own. They were willing to trust God. They were willing to go... All in. No reservations, no mental hesitation. Go all in and stand for something. 
stand in the arena. Oftentimes we get hung up on, well, you know, I'm just going to fail. We're paralyzed by failure. And if you think that you're going to fail, I'm going to tell you something. You're right. You're going to fail. Why? Because we're not God. We're all fallible creatures. Everyone fails. And God knows you're going to fail. He knew it before you woke up this morning that you were going to fail. He knew it before he knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knew it before he even framed the foundation of the universe that you were going to fail. But that doesn't stop him from wanting you to come alongside him and join him in his work. So the only thing we really need, really, when it comes right down to it, what's that one thing? That one thing is a willingness to be used by God. And again, it comes from choosing to put our focus on him. I know I'm hitting this a lot. Might be, might be a theme for this. If we read the New Testament, the disciples weren't rich, they weren't powerful, they weren't connected, they weren't highly educated. Most of them were simple laborers. Don't you find it odd that some simple laborer, maybe, was arguing with the most educated minds of the day, and if we read in verse 10, their worldly knowledge was absolutely no match for the sanctified mind of Stephen. A few chapters ago, we read that Peter and Andrew were pleading their case in what was, what, the Jewish Supreme Court. They blew these guys away. They left them speechless, which I think is a pretty mean feat if you consider that they left a room full of lawyers speechless. (laughs) And here we see it again with Stephen. Stephen, who did not attend seminary, didn't get a PhD, but he was a man with a supernatural gift. Wouldn't it be neat if we had that gift? Well, if you read Romans 8.14, it says, For those that are led by the Spirit are called children of God. So if we read the previous verse in Acts 6.5, sorry about that, uh, it says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a follower of Christ, if you said yes to him, If you have called Jesus Christ your Savior and you have a relationship with him, guess what? Same gift. The Holy Spirit of the creator of the universe and everything that we know in it and the stuff that we don't resides in you. And it says in John 16, 26, I know it's not in your notes, but... It says that the Father will honor you, but first you have to serve him. Paul writes that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Stephen shut those people down in the synagogue because at the base of it, he was honoring God and he was doing God's work. Christ says during the Last Supper that I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last And whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give you. God didn't choose you to be frustrated. 
He didn't choose you to be mediocre. He didn't choose you to sit on the sidelines. He chose you to be wildly abundant and to produce fruits that will last. And that's what we have all been chosen for. And to do that, we've got to prepare ourselves. Now, what I mean by that is a couple of things. Now, if we go back to Acts 6, 8, in your notes, we read that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, he performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. Okay, what does verse 9 say? Opposition arose. Imagine that. Imagine that we're out going out and doing God's word, God's work, and opposition would arise. It happens, but yet every time we're surprised by it. But all through the Bible, we read that the world and the flesh and the principalities of darkness are all at odds with the kingdom of God. So if you're serving the kingdom of God, guess what? Somewhere along the way, it's going to get hard. Somewhere along the way, someone's going to be offended. Somewhere along the way, we're going to stub our toe. Why? Because it says it right here, all through it. And it's going to happen to us, but we have to be prepared for it. See, and I think another reason for this is, is frankly, we become a target. We move from being some sideline player that isn't really engaged, not much of a target, to a high-value target. And the enemy is going to put an end to that. His job is to kill and destroy and to humiliate anybody who's looking to follow Christ. That's who he is. And if we become a servant for the Spirit, he's going to focus his eyes on you. How do we know this? Well, going back to Luke and reading in the Last Supper, Christ himself tells Peter that Satan has asked the Father to shift him like wheat. Now, that would kind of freak me out, frankly. But I think that applies to all of us. I think that, frankly, if we're out there standing in and doing God's work, we're asking for it. Now, what Christ also continues, to say, continues on to say is that he prayed to the Father on Peter's behalf, which, frankly, imagining that the Son of God petitions the Father, the King of the universe, on our behalf, it's a pretty humbling thing to think about. But it's coming. So, easy life, don't want anything really to happen, kind of want the status quo, just sit there. If you want that dynamic life, you want to make a difference, you want to step into the breach, accept the fact that it's not going to be easy along the way. And this applies to all of us. But understand this. It reads in Deuteronomy 31.6, and I think it applies to us, before Joshua goes into the promised land, God says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you, and never will he leave you, and never will he forsake you. That's a promise. 
can take that to the bank. You're never going to be left alone. You're never going to be cut off from your troops. You're never going to be abandoned by the Lord, your God. You've got to be prepared. It's not going to be a cakewalk all the same. So, how do you prepare? Well, spiritually, it comes down to two things. Pray and read your Bible. You've been here long, around here long enough, you're going to hear that, you know, what, solution for 99% of our problems, probably 100%, can't quantify it, just pray and read your Bible. And it's equally valid as here. Why? Well, there's an old analogy that you don't fix your roof when it's raining. When I was in the military, um, first, what, 16 weeks they call basic training? And they start off with, this is your weapon. It's an M16. Here's the part where the bullets come out. Here's the part where you put the bullets in. Here's the thing that makes the bullets come out. And they made you, me, very familiar with it. Take it apart, put it back together, do it with my eyes closed. Um, Zillions of times, over and over and over and over again. If sand gets in it, what do you do? If it misfires, what do you do? How do you load it? Why? Why, is this, why was this remotely important? Because when the time came when I actually have to use it, that's not the time to pull out the manual and figure out how the thing works. It's already passed you. And that's the same thing with this manual. Understand, it's coming. One way or the other. You will be shifted, you will be tempted, and wouldn't it be a shame that the words of comfort that God had written to you on expressively your account were lost from you because you didn't know where to find them or how to apply them? It says in the word, draw close to God and he will draw close to you. As it says in 2 Timothy 2.21, Those who cleanse themselves through the ladder will be instruments for what? Special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And remember, when we're talking about being prepared, it's not about us. Ephesians 2.10 writes, For we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, for who, which God prepared in advance for us to do so. We're prepared. But it's a 50-50 proposition. We've got to take ownership. We've got to take responsibility for our lives and make the conscious decision to prepare ourselves. How useful we will be entirely depends on our willingness to follow him and follow through on that willingness. Brings us to this point. When we place our focus on that service, focus on obedience, not on outcomes. Because, frankly, it would be easy for us to conclude that Stephen's life was a disappointment. I mean, nowhere in the Bible do we read that anyone was converted during Stephen's sermon. I mean, really? Gave a sermon, he was dragged outside of town, he was stoned to death. 
I mean, not really an outcome that anyone would, have, would consider a success. But God works in a way that exceeds our understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Or, as Paul wrote it, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Again, it requires us to put our focus on something other than ourselves. Because if we grade it by our own standards, much of the greatest work that God does either goes beneath our radar screen or we don't have the perspective to see it. In our own limited myopic view, we miss the greater things of God's handiwork because, frankly, we don't have his perspective. And since we don't, it requires an act of faith to not trust our own understanding, but actually trust that whatever we're doing, regardless of the pain, regardless of the uncomfort, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the outcome that we see manifesting before us at this very moment in time, it's not in vain. And often I challenge you to think about that maybe some of our greatest works, some of the greatest things that when we stand before the Father and he says, well done, thy good and faithful servant, are going to be things that we had absolutely no idea that we, were even, that we even did. But we just happened to be obedient at that moment in time and we were a tool that availed us for God's work. I'll give you an example. We were talking, I said I was going to come back to Stephen and talk about what his life actually accomplished. If we looked at Acts 8.1, it said all except the apostles were scattered out through Judea and Samaria. Okay, so if we read Acts 1.8 where Christ had talked about spreading the word, spreading the gospel, guess what? It happened. Okay, it says in Acts 7.58, uh, this is when they were stoning him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, Stephen, through his life and death, bridges Peter and Paul. Because Peter's ministry was all in Jerusalem. But Paul's ministry went throughout the world. And Stephen was a catalyst for that ministry. He was a catalyst for the church being spread. Now, he did it indirectly. He did it by being martyred. And when he got killed, persecution broke out and it scattered the church. But that's exactly what Christ had told the church to do. They hadn't moved the needle. But Christ, moved, uh, but Stephen moved the needle in a big way. Now, also, it might turn out that Saul's first experience, first exposure to the gospel was through Stephen. Because Saul was definitely a part of the group that opposed and murdered him. And understand that all these great minds were confounded by Stephen. Paul was one of those guys. He was a highly educated dude. And he placed everything he had against Stephen and couldn't stand up against it. Now I'm sure that after they murdered him and he was heading on north to Damascus to go wipe out more Christians, I'm sure a smart guy like that 
was smarting from the intellectual spanking that he got from him, and that stuff was on his mind. So it's no doubt that when Christ appeared in front of him, Saul, later Paul, was already prepped. He'd heard it. He'd applied it. He'd intellectualized it. He argued against it, and it was irrefutable. So when Christ came, boy, that, 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 that row had already been plowed. So you think about it. Stephen, in a very real sense, was the preliminary for Paul's ministry, who, if we think about it, is responsible for about a quarter of the New Testament. You see what I mean? It's, up until that point, the disciples, that young church, they see one of their stars get killed. It's a bad day in Dodge. They didn't have the perspective that God had. They didn't see the plan unfold. So, I mean, when it comes to inviting that difficult friend to church or changing diapers in the nursery or standing out and greeting people at church or asking a cashier as you're going through the checkout line, where do you go to church? How can I pray for you? Taking those kind of risks. We have no idea what that outcome is going to be. We have no idea what God does with our service. Let me give you an example. We all know Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham, big, big evangelist. Those of you that don't know Billy Graham, here's a guy who it's said has witnessed to and converted more people to Christ than anyone in human history up to this point. Pretty big deal. You would say that this guy has it going on. You know how he came to Christ? He was some teenage punk kid going into a tent revival because they wanted to heckle the guy who was preaching. All right, I mean, come on, it's North Carolina in the 30s. Or so. I mean, there's not this or television, so they had to have something to do. So they go to the tent revival to heckle the guy. So he walks in with his crew. There's an elderly gentleman, think Bob White, says, son, I've got a seat for you right here. And he takes Billy Graham by the hand, and he sits him down, he puts him in the front row, probably to shut this kid up. But he puts him in the front row, Billy Graham gets converted, or he gets convicted, then he gets converted, and then what happens? A whole bunch of people come to Christ, kingdom gets expanded, right? You have a mighty warrior for God. Now let me ask you something. Did that man... Who, find a, who found a seat for Billy Graham, did he change the world? I mean, we all can't be Billy Graham. I mean, it's painfully obvious in this case. But what we can do is we can find a seat for a teenager. But it's your choice. Stand with me and pray with me for a moment. Dear Father God, I, uh, I thank you. Uh, I, I, I wholeheartedly thank you for what you've done and what you continue to do for us. 
because basically, I mean, we are, we are hopeless without you. We are sinful, selfish, self-centered, wicked, rebellious people. But through your son and his sacrifice, you see us as righteous. You see us as pure. If we've accepted you, you see us as your adopted children. I just thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray that as we, we stand here, that you embolden us to bring that good news to others. I pray that you give us the willingness to be that person in the arena. That although there are faces marred by dust, sweat, and blood, that you do give us the opportunity to, to stand in and, and come alongside you and, and, and be your tools for your, for your glory. Lord, as we, uh, as we pass out through this week, I just pray that you offer us opportunities to minister to others, to affect others' lives, and Lord, to glorify you through our thoughts and our actions. We give you this praise and we thank you in your holy name. Amen.